grab your Bibles, Romans chapter 9, verse 30, while you get ready. I noticed the, um, there's different versions of me on the video. I don't know if you noticed that or not. You know, <clears throat> 14 years, we change a lot. And so anyway, keep your opinions to yourself how I have changed. But uh, we, are glad that you are, uh, we are glad that you're here this morning. Romans chapter 9 and verse 30, we start together today. And, and so I wanted to, you know, share with you our first Sunday 14 years ago that we came together, we worshiped, and we, we sang. I, I remember that day because um, very vividly, we didn't have a band. We just started, and we didn't have a band. And, and so we sang to a CD, which I think was kind of funny, right? And we sang to a CD, and I, and I was watching up here this morning and thinking, my God, God is so good. God is so amazingly good in, in our lives. And, and so I remember that day, and, and what we did that day was we, we preached Scripture. We taught Scripture just as we were going to teach this morning. And so some of the things I will say to you today, I said on that very Sunday morning 14 years ago in the, our, our restaurant where we met together. So let me start by saying this to you, telling you a little story, or asking you a question, I should say. Um, how many of you have ever stumbled or tripped over your own feet in public? Raise your hand if you've ever done that. Anybody? Terrific. Good. All right. Great. 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 And, and, and how many of you have ever tried to, you've done that, and you tried to, to, to recover gracefully? Anybody try to recover? Have you ever noticed that doesn't work, does it? It does not work. Absolutely, it doesn't. Yes. And, and so I had this opportunity some years ago to be the parliamentarian. That's a big word, right? That's just the guy that knows the rules. In this meeting with a lot of pastors, hundreds of pastors, it was a very fancy kind of thing. You know, I had a shirt, the tie, the coat, and all that kind of stuff on and so I was at this meeting. I'm the parliamentarian. So occasionally I have to come up to the moderator in front of everybody on this very high stage in this huge room. And I have to come up and give him notes or say things to him or give him clarifications for parliamentary procedure. And so I, I had, I, I waited and I waited and my moment came, you know, my big moment came that I was going to get on the stage. I was a lot younger and I was get on the stage and I had to talk to him about something. And so I left my seat down on the floor and I started making my way up all of those stairs. It was a really high stage. And I got to about the very top step. Guess what happened? What happened? I tripped on my own two feet and I fell right at his feet. I did. I fell right in front of him. I did like I was worshiping him almost. I fell right in front of him and I laid there for a minute. And I thought, do I fake a heart attack now or not? You know, right? Yes. Because if the EMS comes, they can take me out and I can tell them I'm okay and I can disappear and never be seen again. Or what do I do? I don't know what to do. Because here's the thing that was so awkward. Nobody laughed in the building, right? And you think if they had laughed at me, I would have felt more comfortable about all of this. Nobody laughed. And so I got up and I did perhaps one of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life. I don't know why I did this. But I turned around to the audience and I bowed like it was like it was some kind of show, you know. It, it was I, I was I was uh, an entertainer or whatever, and I bowed, and they still didn't laugh, you know. And it was the most uncomfortable moment for me. I gave him the piece of paper. I walked down. I never came up on the stage again. I just couldn't wait to go home because I stumbled. Say, Mark, what does that have to do with what you're about to read? It has a great deal to do with this. Because what I realized also that day, I really didn't stumble over my feet. I stumbled over my own pride. Oh, we could preach that, couldn't we? Yes, we sure could. Let me read this text to you about Romans 9 and verse 30. What shall we say then? Paul starts out a lot of his text by simply saying that. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. That doesn't sound fair, does it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law 
that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. And I think, well, that even seems to be even more unfair. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They have, oh, here's the reason I told you the story. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, is what it says. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If you write in your Bible, which it is okay to write in your Bible, by the word shame, write the words disappointed or also let down. Because I think that gives a little more context to what we're talking about this morning. So here's the question. Why do people stumble over Christ? I think that's huge. Why, why do people stumble over Christ? And you think, but Mark, he must be writing to people that are unchurched because it's the commandments, right? Yes, and they want to do these things, but, you know, God is saying, no, this is the way you should live. And so they're stumbling over that. But when we go back to our teaching in the book of Romans, this is a complete letter to who? To the church at Rome. It is to people that attend church. Can I tell you something for those sitting in here uh, on campus, those that are joining us from church at home? Church is messy. Realize that. Look at the people around you. You are surrounded by messy people. And I'm not talking about people that didn't make their bed before they came to church this morning. I'm talking about their lives are absolutely messy. So church is an absolute messy place. And when I read this, I thought, man, those that didn't pursue righteousness, but they attained it by faith, and those that pursued Because of their works, because of their works, they were leaning into their works, they failed. It's a spiritual quandary. And so what I realize is that faith in Christ requires, not the word suggest, but faith in Christ requires this morning that we lay down this idea of self-righteousness. By the word self-righteousness, if you're taking notes, write These two words, self-reliance. And I want to talk about that in a moment. Because faith in Christ requires you and I to lay aside this self-reliance, this self-righteousness, and we accept His. Can I talk to you about the term self-righteousness? Because I think when we preach that sometimes, man, we, we tend to check out. We separate ourselves from those words at times. Why? Because we attach those things to things that we've read in New Testament. We simply say, oh, that's the way the Pharisees were. And I don't live like that. I don't go around quoting the Torah in public and having people gather around me so that they will think, oh, he must really be close to God because look what he does and look what he knows. I don't simply say, okay, everybody gather around me because I'm about to give this homeless person that's asking for food over here on the corner some food. So I want everybody to see that most of you in this room don't live like that. So what came to my mind when I read this text is that of self-reliance. How we are trying to simply make God pleased with us when God is already pleased with us. That it comes down to me living in the shadow of God is perfect, absolutely perfect, yes. And the shadow also of my great imperfection, my own brokenness and my own sinfulness in this life that it brings me to that place, and that is not a popular thought. And I get that, I really do. But here is the thought. As long as we pursue salvation, as long as I'm pursuing salvation in my life on my terms, on my works and my merit and how I get it right, and I'm going to do better today or tomorrow, God, because I really messed up really bad today. As long as we're pursuing that, like, like the Jews, man, they were great rule keepers. 613 rules they lived by. 
That's wild, isn't it? You guys can't even live by 10. Isn't that true? Right? 613 of them. They had 38 rules about the Sabbath. They did. I mean, you couldn't walk with a certain number of steps. You couldn't pick up so many sticks. I mean, it just goes on and on about how you kept the Sabbath holy. And so they were great rule keepers in that area. And when I read this, I thought it's so powerful for us to understand as long as I am pursuing salvation in my own terms, I will continually stumble and fall over this overwhelming fact that God loves me uh, with an uh, unmerited love, uh, a love that I could never earn, I could never deserve, that favor of Christ that he already has for me, whether I get it right today or I get it wrong, all of those things, what I realize is God loves me, and I'm going to continually stumble over that fact about God if I'm trying to please him every day so somehow he's going to love me more. You see, Christ here is referred to as a rock, is what he is referred to as. And I realize that I can build a foundation in my life, a foundation on the fact that God chose me, that salvation for my life and your life was always God's idea. It was never my idea. It's not that I one day decided to follow Jesus. He chose me. And that is a powerful thought for you and I to process. Paul refers to it as the doctrine of election, that he has justified me, that he continues to sanctify me. What that means is this, that he's not done with me yet, that he continues to grow me as I submit myself to him. And and those moments when I don't get it right, and those moments when I really fail in this journey with God, it's not like God says, I'm going to love you on the good days, and the other days I'm going to separate myself from you. And that is not the God we serve. But I build my foundation on understanding that God loves me unconditionally, or I can continue to stumble in this idea that somehow that this salvation with God and my relationship with God has something to do with how good I am and how desirable I am to God. That self-righteousness, self-reliance is, is, is not a name tag that you and I wear. It's not. It's not. You don't, you don't go to somebody and say, hi, I'm Mark and I'm self-righteous. No, you don't do that, right? Because they're, they're going to say, hey, I'm, I'm whoever and it was nice meeting you and you never talk to them again, right? It's not that at all. But it's this real ingrained process in our life and how you and I live. It really is. It's how we live We may not even use the word self-righteous, but how many times are we self-reliant? How many times are we working our way so that God somehow will love us more? How many times are you saying to God, God, I was really, I messed up bad today, but I promise you that I will be better tomorrow. Just give me another opportunity. And so it's something that is ingrained within our lives. And what I understand is this self-righteousness, according to what Paul is saying it's the opposite of faith and trust in God. The Gentiles, they pursued, they didn't even pursue righteousness, but simply by faith they received it. The Jews, oh, they're working their way to that point, and they failed in in receiving it. It's where we place our trust. And what I realize is this overwhelming part of the foundation of God in my life is that saving me was always God's idea. It was always God's idea. It was never my idea. Never. That loving me was always God's idea. 
It was never mine. It goes back to a statement that is in our doctrinal statements. If you read online, it's what I preached about the very first time that we came together. And that is of God's complete sovereignty in our lives and complete human responsibility for our behavior. And you say, Mark, that's a huge statement. I don't understand all of this. When you, when you make statements like that, and, and they're hard to really wrap your mind around it, that what you do is you find someone smarter than you that said it better than you, and you quote them. And then that's what I want to do. I want to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones, Lloyd-Jones, and here's what he says. It is God's action alone that saves a man. So why is anybody lost? Is it because they are not elected? And the answer to that is no. And there's an exclamation, exclamation point there. It's no. So what he goes to say, what accounts for the lost is their rejection of the gospel. That we are, hold on, this is tough. That we are responsible for our rejection of the gospel, but we are not responsible for our acceptance of it. And I'm thinking, you know, like, Pick up your brain, put it back in your head, because that's really a lot, and that, that's a really heavy. And what does he really mean there? And what I'm saying to you is this, that his, it, it was his idea. It was God's idea and not mine. Well, Mark, I, I can't understand how that works. I really can't. And, and, I, and I quote to you Deuteronomy 29 and 29, because that is John Calvin's most favorite scripture of all the Bible. And here's what it says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And what I realize about God, and I hope you understand this this morning, is this, that I don't have to understand everything about him. That I don't have to understand every thought that he has or every action that he takes. I don't have to logically figure out all of that. What I do have to understand, and I've said this for 14 years to you, is this. I do need to understand his character and nature. I need to realize that God is loving and God is gracious. And what I understand is God is kind and he is forgiving and he is just. And God is the one that initiates our salvation, not us. That's a foundation. And that's important that we wrap our mind around that. Because some of you are stumbling over that unconditional love of God for you today. You really are. You just can't understand that. Yes, some of you are stumbling over a lack of security in your life when it comes to your salvation. So you're questioning God about those kinds of things. I think some of you are just are stumbling through this whole thing that God accepts you regardless of. Can I share with you two texts that really explains to us the heart of God? It's the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3 and verse 9. And here's what it says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think that's powerful. That says to me that that's the heart of God, that God is absolutely patient with me. And because of that, there's no fear in my life that God absolutely controls salvation. There's no fear for me because God is patient with me. How many of you suffer from a lack of patience sometimes in your life? You're impatient. Let me see all the impatient people. Good. All right. That's not. Now look at all the other people. They're all liars that were raising their hand, right? Yes. <laughs> we all deal with that at some point, right? Especially if you have kids. Oh, you have kids. It's in the handbook, right? When they pop into the world, the handbook that comes with them, you will be impatient is what it says. 
Yes, you're going to lose it. You're going to say things at times. I know, I have three of them. Absolutely, I understand that. Look at, look at what Jesus says to in the book of Matthew, chapter 23. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So not only is he patient to me, but he sees me in need He sees me as a little chick who absolutely needs the warmth of his mom under the wings. He needs protection. He needs nourishment. That is the way God sees me. And and what I realize is that's God's heart toward me, that God has established how he feels about you and I. But when I go to that text, when Jesus speaks to us in Matthew, it says you're not willing. It is God's sovereignty. Human responsibility is what it is. It's as much as about, this is as much about how God loves me as to how I allow God's love to set me free from me, from my own reliance in me. I think that's a powerful thought. That he chose me. That's not a fatalistic doctrine. And so don't, don't brand it as that. It's about me laying aside this robe of self-righteousness, of reliance in me. And God clothing me with his righteousness and his goodness and the blamelessness of his son. And I rest in that because he chose me. He chose me. Let me tell you part of mine and Reba's story for a moment this morning. I I remember the day that I came face to face with with this woman by the name of, before she was Reba Gaskew, she was Reba Steen. I remember that day. We were in college together at the university, and I used to look at her across the room in, in class, and I used to think, gosh, she is so amazingly hot. But, you know, she would never have anything to do with me, and I would look at her. And, and I remember that. And so I would kind of admire her from afar, you know, kind of deal. And... One day that we happened to bump into each other in the post office and we were the only two in the building. There was no one else there. I was so nervous. I was sweating in places that you should never sweat in. I I really was, right? And I mean, I was super nervous. And and I looked at her and my gosh, I I was just breathless by her her beauty. She She is a beautiful woman. I love her so much. And, and, I, and I, I was just, I think I was speechless. And we talked for a few moments. I thought, oh God, she talked to me. You know, this is amazing, right? Yes, and she talked to me. And, and she allowed me, like, in her presence. And, and it's just, this was an amazing moment. And, and when we part our ways and she left, I realized, and I know, I know you're gonna think this is weird, okay? But you know me, if you know me, then you think, no, it's just normal for him. And, and so, it, it, weird. But, but I knew that I loved her. I know that's strange, isn't it? In, in a certain way, I knew that I loved her. But she didn't feel the same way. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? Right? Yes, yes. She didn't feel the same way at first. And, and that was smart of her and wise of her. It really was. It really was, right, babe? Isn't that truth? Somebody, thank you for the laugh. Yes, but it's true. Yes, absolutely. Yes, that's truth. She had to vet me first. You know, that we, that's a word that we understand now, right? And, I loved her, but here's the thought. Nothing could change that or change the way I felt about her. In fact, we didn't have a relationship, really, just, just friends, distant friends, but we talked. 
I still loved her. And I wrote this in my journal as I thought about this this week. That she didn't have to recognize my love to make it real. I want you to let that sit in for a moment in your heart. That she didn't have to recognize my love to make it real. And I think with you and I and when it comes to God, that sometimes we think that somehow we have to recognize how God feels about us and that somehow enacts God's love toward us. That somehow we have to say some words, and we'll talk about those later, and, and, or somehow we have to make a move in a service, or, or, or we, have to, we have to do something in order to recognize His love, and then that enacts His love, and then He loves us. And can I tell you something about the Lord this morning? He loves you unconditionally. God's sovereignty, human responsibility and how I respond to that love. Because I believe the most loving thing a Savior could do for His children who are broken and sinful is to not allow them to have any control over Him choosing to love them. Because if we have control over that and how God loves us and accepts us, then those moments when we really mess up and we don't get it right, we will have a fear in our hearts that he will somehow abandon us and leave us because it's all dependent upon us. That's a lot to process. It really is. Because I think about myself, and I, and I think about that, you guys are so easy to preach to, man, I'm just keeping talking up here, I hadn't got the second point, I don't know if you've noticed that or not, you know, and, and, and y'all just so wonderful, you're going to pay for that, okay, so just hang on, now here, but, but I think of myself and, and the way I was raised, and I'm so thankful for my ecclesiastical background, my church background, and I love that, but I do realize that some things in my background caused me to, to doubt my salvation continually. It did. That I always wondered about things like, you know, did I pray the sinner's prayer the right way? Did I say the right words? Did I, did I do that to somehow enact God's love within my life? And, and did I, is my faith strong enough to be saved? And is my faith strong enough to keep me saved, right? And so this is really about me. This is what Paul is addressing. Or do I feel sorry enough for my sins when I mess up? Do I feel sorry? Am, am I just, you know, clothing myself in these ashes and a sackcloth you know and i'm sitting there do do i feel sorry enough for my sin and i wrote in my journal which is so freeing this week i said since god chose me that i have no fear that at some point he will change his mind about me then he won't because it's not about me because my relationship with him is based on his faithfulness not my faithfulness well, Mark, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the ability to just do whatever we want? No, no, no. Wait a minute. And I'm not giving an addendum to this because God's love does not need an addendum. What I'm saying to you is this. I obey him because he's accepted me. That's what the fuel is for my obedience. I'm not simply saying this, that I'm going to obey him. Then he's going to accept me. No, the, the fuel for my obedience in life is that of his acceptance. And it brings me to this next point. Finally, I get to it, right? Whoo, finally. Zeal without understanding is what Paul talks about. And so here's what, here is what 
Paul says in Romans 10 and verse 1, Brothers, my heart desire, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. And so Paul says, wait, these are more than just words. These are more than just some theological discourse for people to listen to. I'm praying for my brothers and sisters because they're stumbling over the unconditional love of God, of grace and mercy and forgiveness. They're stumbling over this because they can't see past their own works and trying to please God and to earn something from God that's already been freely given. So I'm praying for them because you pray for the things that are important to you. Is what you do. Prayer is not only powerful, prayer is revealing for our lives. It reveals the things that are close to our heart. And then he says in verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, not, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For oh, I, I underline verse 4, right in your Bible, it's powerful. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. It's powerful. And what, what he's saying to his fellow Jews is, Hey, I commend you for your for being zealous. I commend you for that, for your dedication, your sincerity, your sincerity to keep the law because you're good rule keepers. And so I, I admire you for all of that, but that's not enough. It's not enough to just be sincere is what he's saying. There's more to it than that. There's not, it's not enough to just to live every day trying to make God smile at you. There has to be more than that is exactly what he's saying. That our zeal for God has to be based on this knowledge that God chose me. That it was his idea from the beginning. That he's the one that accepted me far before I ever responded to him. That's such a powerful thought. And when I look at this, what I realize that our our obedience and what I do for God in this world works out from that understanding. That's why he says to the Jews, you have a zeal, but you don't have the understanding of what's behind all of that. And that's why you keep stumbling over this. It's the knowledge that drives my behavior. But they're so sincere. A maxim that maybe you've heard before, it does not matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Can I tell you that's wrong? Because I, because, listen, I sincerely sinned a lot. I really did, right? I was good at it. I I gave all my heart to it. I really did. Don't look at me like you're innocent. You know you did too. Yes. You were professionals at sinning. Yes. So I was sincere. So there has to be more to it than that. But then he says, and I I wrote this down. But then he says, the Jews, they were ignorant to the, to this understanding. And I thought, well, how can God hold them accountable to that, right? If they don't know any better. And what I realize is what we call vincible ignorance. And what that means is this. It's not that the information was not available. It's simply that not knowing suited them best. It's an excuse. He said, then Christ is the end of the law. Not the abolisher of the law, but he is the fulfillment of the law. He came to cover us with his righteousness, to release us from self-reliance. That he loves me unconditionally. And when he does that, that eliminates all my excuses. It does. Yes. Christ being the end of the law 
is about acceptance. And when I'm accepted by God and I have nothing to do with that acceptance, then I have no excuses in my bag of excuses to pull out anymore because it covers all of those in my life. That he's the end of the law of righteousness. Now, can I borrow this morning a illustration from a communicator much better than I, and that is Tony Evans. And it's about the perplexity that we find in the South. In the South, we have two types of teas, right? You say, well, no, you have, you have like green tea. Yeah. No, no, I'm not talking about that junk. What I'm talking about here is we have, right? We have sweet tea and we have unsweetened tea, all right? So, and I said tea like that because that's the way we say it in the South, tea. So, so how many of you, okay, let's, let's just, how many of you are purist and, and you, you just drink sweet tea? Let me see your hand, all the sweet tea people. Okay, all right, put your hand down. How many of you are unsweet tea people? Anybody? Look at all the defectors in the room. You see that? You see that? I, Reba and I drink in sweet tea. So here's the, here's the perplexity of it all. Here it is, right? Let me put this out here so you guys can see it. Here's the perplexity of it all. You go to a restaurant, and I hear people do this. They order unsweetened tea, and they put sugar in it, okay, right? Well, why don't you just order the other stuff, right? Because in the South, sweet tea is the consistency of pancake syrup. That's exactly what it is, right? Yes, it's like drinking a bottle of whatever, Miss Buttersworth. And so, and, and so you, you have it, you get it to your table, I've got unsweetened tea. It makes you feel really good about yourself, too, like you're all healthy and kind of stuff like that, right? And, and, and the first thing you do, you don't even taste it first. Have you ever noticed people do They didn't taste it first. They go ahead and they add a little sugar. They stir it, right? What happens to the sugar when you stir it in iced tea? What happens to it? It goes to the bottom. Exactly. So what happens to the first taste that you get from it? It's bitter, Right? So what do you do? Well, you do what you're supposed to do, right? You add more sugar. Yes. Lord, help us. This is the South. Sugar fixes everything along with bacon. Just have a little bacon and sugar together and you are good to go, right? Yes. Every time you are taking a drink of it, it's bitter. So you add what? A little more. Yes. God help us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You say, Mark, what does this have to do with us? Oh, it has a lot to do with you. It really does. <laughs> and here it is. <laughs> You've been waiting patiently, I know. Because you get up every morning and you look at your life and your life is so bitter. You have brokenness and sin and you've promised God so many things and you failed in those areas. And so what do you do? You add a little sugar to your life, Right? What is that? You had little works. I'm going to do better. I'm going to love people more. I'm not going to cuss as much, God. Only three words a day. I'll cut down from 30. And so, you know, right? You know, I won't say the F word. I'll just say other words, right? Kind of deal. And you know what I'm talking about. Come on. We, you've heard it before. I don't. And so, you add a little sugar, right? And then the next day, you find that you've messed up again. What do you do? Add a little sugar. But every time you're adding sugar to your life by your works and trying to this self-reliance and trying to make this work on your own, it always goes to the bottom and leaves you bitter. 
Here's what God says to us through his servant Paul. He says this to us, that simply Jesus is the end of your stirring. It's exactly what he says. If he's the end of the law of righteousness to righteousness, he's the end of the stirring in your life. He is. Because when Jesus does this work in our hearts and our lives, and we are trusting him, standing on that rock, that's not about us and about us earning these things, but yet we are accepted by God, and so that's why we obey, that when we are standing on that in our lives, then no artificial additives are needed in our life. Understand that, and that's what you're trying to do. And so many of you every day try to do that in your life. You try to add this artificial thing to shore it up, to make it better, to make it a little sweeter in your life. And what I realize, there's two ways I can come to God. I can come to God and I can approach God on my charm and my ability. And can I tell you what? It doesn't work real well. I've tried that. But I can come to God in the covering of his son's perfection. And find myself not needing any sweetener. You see, the Lord is here to set some of you free from that today. Because you've, you've doubted You've struggled with this in your life. You've wondered, did I do enough things? Did I say the right words with God? But here's what God says. The word is near you. Let me read these texts and tie this together. It says in verse 8, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the people who does commandments shall live by them. But the, righteous based, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say to your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Here's what, here's what Paul is doing. Paul is quoting from Leviticus. Now when you quote from Leviticus, you mean business. Have you ever read Leviticus, right? Right? Yeah, well, I want to do devotional through the book of Leviticus. No, you don't. No, you don't, okay? Understand that, right? You just just don't pass over that, okay? So here is the thing. What he's saying to you and I is this. God has done all that is required through Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's done all that is required through Jesus. That Jesus descended to the abyss for us. That he ascended to heaven on our behalf. That everything that was needed to do and required has been done by God through His Son, Jesus. That righteousness for you and I is not a chase. It's not that. It's not a quest for you and I. It's a work of God within our lives. Understand this. And we will continually struggle and will continually stumble over this stone, this stone of our own self-reliance until we come to this place and realize that God has done everything that has been required through His Son. But when we stop chasing something greater than God has already gifted to you and I, and realize that it's all been done, that He chose us, that He didn't find us righteous, He made us righteous, then we find rest in Him and we stop stirring our tea. 
The word is in you. It's near you. The last text, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Oh, you've heard this text, haven't you? Some of you have, right? It's usually the one that is used at the end of the service. Can I tell you, and we'll teach on this more another time, that realizing that, and I know this is going to really get on some of your nerves, that's not two steps to salvation. Realize that. Because if that was two steps to salvation, then again, it's back on us. Right? But that's not what that's about. I'll leave you hanging on that one. We'll talk about it a little bit, but we'll talk about that another time. But he said this, that you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Abide the word shame, write again the word disappointed or will not be let down. Can I tell you something today? That your salvation in God, it's more than words. No, it really is. It's, it's more than just you and an action. It's much more than that. What I realize about the salvation of God is this. That it's more of a transference of our trust and our hope is really what this is. It's more than just what you say. Or a phrase that somebody leads you in in your life. But it's about where we transfer our hope. If I were to say that this duel is God, then, then what is my salvation about? Is it about me saying some words to this? Or is it about me transferring the hope in my life to this. Because it says here in this text that we just read, it says that simply we will not be put to shame, that we will not be disappointed or let down. So it's about me saying, this is my hope. You see, your relationship with God transcends some words that you said, or maybe you would even say today. Can I get real churchy with you for a moment? Shows you how long I've been in church. It's a lot more than you just walk in the aisle. Say that's a churchy term, right? It's a lot more than you shaking the pastor's hand down front. And I'm not minimalizing. I'm not devaluing. And no way is this a derogatory statement toward anybody that's had that experience or any pastor that might be here today or watching online. But it's more than that. It's more than you just bowing your heads and closing your eyes and raising your hand. It's more than that. Because here's the thought. Some of you have trusted greatly in that. And you're still struggling with placing your hope here. You're fluctuating back and forth, and I understand that, and we do that in our walk with Christ, but you are struggling with this. But Mark, I prayed the prayer. I know you did. So my point is not to challenge your salvation, but my point today is to challenge where your hope is. 
because anything outside of placing and transferring my hope here puts everything back on me. And I have a real, real terrible track record. And so do you. So where's your hope? Where is it? Because you get up every day and you stir your tea. You add a little more sugar. I'm going to do a little more. And you keep stumbling over that self-reliance in your life. And God says, wait. I have done everything that's required. Hope in me. Put it here. And that is our salvation. So let's get churchy one more time for a moment. Just bow your heads and close your eyes. <laughs> As a moment of reflection. Not that it does anything for you within itself other than you're like me and and your attention deficit you get distracted easily but where's your hope this morning are you going to get up tomorrow morning and are you going to say man if I was just good enough or are you going to get up tomorrow morning and apologize to God for things that have failed in your life are you going to get up in the morning and just continually place yourself on the, the whipping post of guilt in your life? Because you think, well, I could have done something more or I could have done something else. Because when we do that, that is self-reliance. That is placing all of this back upon us. And what I realize is this, I can sit and hope today. Or I can stand in my own reliance and righteousness. And like I said before, we have a horrible track record. So for today, for some of you in this room, today is the end of a journey for you. I believe that. Today is an end of a long journey in your life because today you're going to transfer your hope for some of you, that's going to be your initial move to God. That's going to be your redemption moment. For some of you, that you have been walking with God for a long time, but you continually take this hope and put it on your shoulder, and you carry it and you carry it, and when you fall, you simply find your way back to the stool. But today, you're going to move to God. And it's going to be a beginning of a new journey of freedom for you. So let me pray for you for a moment, Father, as we sit in this moment before you as your children. God, that you would speak to us today. That you know us more than we even know ourselves. And God, that you would meet us exactly where we are this morning in our lives. God, you know how we struggle with this. You know how we struggle in this transference of hope within our lives But God, you've done everything that is required. 
Why do we struggle, God, to obtain something that you've already freely given to us? So speak to us, Lord. Speak to us, Father. God, for those that this is their first moment of redemption, this is their first moment of coming to you, God, that you would reveal to them their great need for a Savior in their life and the greater truth that they did nothing to earn or deserve this. But you have accepted them. So, Father, I come to you today as a sinner, broken, in great need in my life. And so, God, I accept your forgiveness in my life today. God, you know all the things that are there. But today I realize that you have met every requirement. And so today I'm forgiven. God, I profess today that you are the Savior of my life. And I will walk with you in obedience out of your acceptance. And God, you know that we've been been following you for a long time, Lord, and I'm struggling with the guilt and the shame in my life. I'm struggling with not being good enough. I'm, I'm struggling with having to say every day that I just want to be right with you. And God, what I realize today is you have made everything right. So I choose to no longer stand in self-reliance, but to simply sit in hope, knowing that you will never let me down. Because you are a sovereign God. Thank you, Father. Holy Spirit, drive these truths deep into our hearts this morning.